Good morning. I'd like to invite you all to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. I'm drinking today from my St. Mary's Ecumenical Institute mug. Went there yesterday for an uh, alumni breakfast. And uh, if you haven't um, seen in the Inu Hope and also in the, bullet, or in the uh, bulletin board outside in the hallway, uh, there's an event coming up uh, that's uh, the theologian Marion May Thompson's coming to do a, a lecture on the book of John um, uh, at St. Mary's, it's a lecture that's free and open to the public, and they, they do like registration, but uh, if you've never been to St. Mary's, if you've never been to a lecture at St. Mary's, strongly recommend it. It is uh, um, something that you just, when you, when you walk into this place and you just see this, this history, it's the oldest um, Catholic seminary in, um, in, in the United States. And it's just a gorgeous building to be in, and you just walk in, and you just feel the presence of God, uh, and they just do incredible work there. So I just uh, commend that to you. So again, I'd just like to invite you to grab a Bible, if there's one in front of you. If not, there's one in the cart in the back. Um, and turn to Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And forgive me in saying one last time that the sermon today is rated PG-13. It's not quite R. We've had R-rated sermons in the past, um, but uh, not, not quite today. It's not going to get quite that spicy. But our tradition at New Hope has been, to, like, like Jen said earlier, to deal honestly with all texts of sacred scripture as we have the opportunity to examine them. Uh, and today, there is no beating around the bush. The topic is human sexuality. We're continuing our series, The New Way to Be Human, which is an expositional trek through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is perhaps the most famous sermon ever written. And we saw from the beginning of the series, Jesus giving the crowd announcements of kingdom realities called the Beatitudes. He, he looks out at the crowd, uh, this crowd that is full of broken and beaten and oppressed individuals, exhausted individuals. And he says to these folks who are at the end of their rope, he says, I have good news for you. God is on your side. And right up front, I think we should acknowledge that the topic of human sexuality is a difficult one. It's a difficult topic because it's a complicated topic. A topic that every civilization in human history has had to wrestle with. If you're here this morning and sex is a subject that weighs on your heart for any reason, you need to know that God is on your side. Your heavenly Father is crazy about you, and he desires the best for you. And we're going to look at some challenging words today from the lips of Jesus himself, but before we do that, it's important to say that our desire is for the subject to be discussed in the context of love, in the context of respect and grace and gentleness and peace. This quote from uh, David Gushy and Glenn Stassen gave me hope from their book, Kingdom Ethics. They said, the issue of proper expression of human sexuality is a perennial one. Not only in Christian ethics, see, when it's rated PG-13, you can use higher level words, anyway. Not only in Christian ethics, but also in every ethical system, indeed every human society. There has never been, get this, there has never been a social order that has not reflected upon and prescribed rules 
for this powerful and mysterious dimension of personhood. And as far as we know, there has never been a social order in which sexuality has not spilled messily over the boundaries established for it. Jesus tells us that he is to fulfill the law and the prophets, namely the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, which focused on the call and mission of Israel. Jesus' mission was to bring a completeness or a wholeness to that mission. So after he tells them that God is on their side and that he's continuing Israel's mission to save the world, he then begins to offer some interpretations of the law for his followers. The thing is, when Jesus offers an interpretation of the law, or perhaps better said, when he reclaims interpretation from the scribes and the Pharisees, he does so in a way that shows them this whole new way of being human. Jesus told them that God was on their side, and now he's using six examples of what it looks like for God's people to be on his side. You know about what it looks like, that you know that God is on your side. What does it look like for you to be on God's side? And Jesus begins with the topic of anger, which we discussed last week. And we said that anger, or discontent, is at its root, at, at its core, it's a very good thing. The problem is when we pile sinful things onto anger like our shame and our fear and our selfishness. It's when that happens that we react in explosive anger towards other people um, that robs, their, uh, uh, robs them of their humanity and takes God right out of the mix. And what we're going to see today is a very similar pr- uh, principle um, in Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Ten commandments. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman or such a wrongly divorced woman commits adultery. So here you have Jesus mentioning two of those six interpretations of the law, the first one on lust and the second one on divorce. But, but I hope you can kind of see why it would be a good idea for us to consider those two together, because they are both under the umbrella of human sexuality and what it means to put God at the center of it. And before we take another step, we need to say one thing as clearly as we can, sex is a good thing. Sexual desire is a good thing. The appreciation of the physical form is a good thing. But God desires that our sexuality be rooted in our relationship with him. And therefore, he calls us to practice sexuality according to the boundaries established by him. See, our sexuality becomes lust when we remove God from the equation 
and objectify another human being, and in so doing, attempt to take their humanity away from them. In the section that follows, uh, in the section following lust, uh, Jesus references divorce. And while this text clearly has something to say about the the kind of general topic of divorce, I think if you look at the text carefully, you'll notice that the topic of the objectification of women is actually still the topic at hand. You'll notice for the moment, Jesus does seem to still be talking to men. Um, When I first read the passage, I assumed that that was because it was a patriarchic society and that if we were going to update it for the 21st century, we should use more gender-inclusive language because it's certainly possible for women to lust after, uh, to women lu- to sin through lust. But then a few of the commentaries I read said, you know, don't be so quick to change the pronouns there. This is a patriarchic society, and Jesus is talking to the men. He's telling men that the way to live a kingdom life in regards to women is to stop objectifying them as mere objects for your desire and to stop objectifying them by casually exchanging them through divorce. Your call, gentlemen, is to welcome women as equals, as sisters, not objects. And the Me Too movement has shown a spotlight in our day that this problem is still alive and well in the 21st century. Over 125 case, over 125,000 cases of sexual assault reported across the United States each year, as well as countless examples of sexual harassment, some reported, most unreported, of individuals using positions of power to dismiss the humanity of others. With the introduction of the internet and now smartphones, pornography is more accessible than ever. And the statistics tell us the church is no different in this regard than the rest of the world. We Christians have to look no further than the church to see women and men, adults and children, robbed of their humanity by the very people who are supposed to be leaders in the gospel. How often have we chosen to wallow in filth instead of following the road to true life. That all can seem overwhelming. I know it does for me. But I think that what Jesus is telling us here is that it all begins in the heart. Not just sin, by the way. You know, it's easy for us to say, ah, sin begins in the heart. But did you know your obedience begins in the heart too? Joy begins in the heart. Hope begins in the heart. The stuff that begins in the heart as well as our desire for God's renewal to take place made manifest in our choices because we've rooted our choices in Christ's love rather than fear or shame or selfishness. Turn with me back, back to the beginning, not quite the beginning, to Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. See, God's a creative and dynamic God, one who is creative um, in, in everything that he does as he, as he uh, orchestrates this world. He is this creative, dynamic uh, um, presence in, uh, in, in, in all of existence. 
um, and he uh, designs the humanity after his uh, image in his likeness uh, to be creative entities. And he says, let them have dominion, not dominance, dominion, stewardship, uh, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Uh, over, over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. Here we see the creation of humanity in the context of God's orchestration of the created order. Humanity has a place and a purpose in God's world. And that, is, uh, that humanity is designed to be male plus female. God's design for his dynamic creative energy to continue to create humans is for humanity itself to use their sexuality to be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, sex is here ordained by God as a good part of his creation. Fast forward to chapter 2, where we get uh, the creation story kind of from a different angle. And in the first story, we're told repeatedly that God created things and then called them good. But, but now, in this story, we see something that is not good. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord, had, uh, Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every creature... That was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, for the man, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, Ah, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Not supposed to be subtle. The woman created out of man is called a helper. But it would be a mistake to view this work, uh, this word helper, as um, like servant or inferior. In fact, the word translated helper is often used in parts of the Bible to speak of God himself. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the Lord. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 33 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So, when God says that it wasn't good for man to be alone and that he needed a helper suitable for him, the honor and respect of this term is palpable. And then it becomes it intensely intimate. The man and the woman become 
one flesh. Again, that is not supposed to be subtle. We're told that, when, that, they were, that they were naked and that they were unashamed. What did they have to be ashamed about? They had existed in a world without sin, in perfect relationship with God, and in perfect relationship with each other. They had nothing to prove. They had nothing to exploit. They were both entirely vulnerable, entirely transparent, entirely unashamed, because they trusted each other implicitly. It's a, it's a Trinitarian image, you see. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, were united in the way that the Trinity is united, or the way that the heavens and the earth were united. They, they were one. And then sin entered the picture. And when sin entered the picture, creation rebelled against the Creator, and heaven and earth... They were no longer one. Just as husband and wife were no longer one in quite the same way that they had been before, they were still married. But when sin entered the picture, distance seems to be placed between them. Adam is confronted by God, and his first response is to blame everybody but himself. It was the woman, and not just any woman. He says to God, it was the woman you gave me. When sin enters the picture, that one flesh union gets disrupted. In fact, it gets totally derailed. And reading the book of Genesis is like a whistle-stop tour of sexuality gone wrong. In fact, that seems to be the case in just about the entire Old Testament. Not just the individual choices of the characters in the story, but also in the larger story that God is telling through his collective people of Israel. Israel was supposed to be God's rescue mission to save the world. Israel was supposed to be God's people, set apart, blessed by God in order that they might be a blessing to others. In a sense, they were supposed to be God's helper. Israel was called to be faithful to God in a way that man is called to be faithful to his wife. When Israel repeatedly fell for idolatry to other things, they weren't just breaking legalistic rules. They were being unfaithful to their covenant with God. In fact, to dive into this further, you can compare just two books of the Old Testament. Compare the book of Song of Songs with the book of Hosea. The book of Song of Songs is this book of, let's just say it, this is erotic love poetry told between two lovers. And the imagery is is sort of odd to our ears. The man man says to the woman, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the, the slopes of Gilead. And she's like, thank you, I condition it. He says, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And then the woman says, his cheeks, his cheeks are like bed of spices. Mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, his lips are like lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of steel set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphire. And that's not even the spicy bit. 
The book is about sex, make no mistake about that. But it's an image of what it looks like for a man and woman to be one flesh. And it also, many also see the book as a metaphor of sorts for the intimacy that God desires with his people. Somebody once said that it seems like everything is about sex. Except sex, of course, that's about something else. I think if we have a look at the larger picture of sexuality in the whole of Scripture, we see that sexuality was always pointing towards something else. Perhaps that image at the end of the book of Revelation where we see the heavens and earth united once again as a bride adorned for her husband. There's marriage imagery there. Your marriages are signposts to new creation. And we see that in Genesis with the one flesh, ang- uh, we see that also in Genesis with the one flesh language, and we see it in Song of Songs with this kind of intimate ag- adoration. But if sexuality is used by Scripture as a metaphor for God's desired relationship with humanity, it can also be used to underscore those times when humanity and Israel in particular has abandoned its faithfulness to God in favor of idolatry. The book of Hosea, a prime example of this. Uh, turn with me to the book of Hosea, if you would, about, uh, which is towards the end of the, the Old Testament, six chapters away from Song of Songs. In this book, uh, Hosea is another one of those peculiar books that often gets forgotten, uh, that it's a part of the Bible. In this book, God speaks through the prophet Hosea and instructs him to marry a promiscuous woman and then speaks through him because of Israel's idolatry. Have a look at Hosea 2, where Israel is being likened to an adulterous wife. Hosea 2, starting in, start in verse 7. She shall, shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall, shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will, uh, shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbath, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, which she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and get this, forgot me, declares the Lord. The imagery depicts God's response to Israel's unfaithfulness in worship to pagan gods. And that last line, that last line is piercing. They forgot me, declares the Lord. 
They forgot the one who had given them life. They forgot the one who rescued them from slavery. They forgot the one who holds the world together. And they looked instead to false gods, to lesser things that were not worthy and only set people up for failure. That was the problem in Hosea's day in the 8th century BCE, and it was the problem in Jesus' day in the 1st century AD. And, of course, it remains the problem in our 21st century world. With our technology and our new enlightened ways of thinking, we keep coming up with things to worship instead of God. We keep coming up with other things to place at the center of our heart than God. I think that the point of Jesus' comments in the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's the point of of Jesus' comments in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're objectifying another human being created in my image, that is a surefire sign that you don't have me at the center of your heart, or at least not all of it. God's not surprised that we adore other people's bodies. He designs human sexuality that way, but just like anger, which we said last week was just pure, concentrated love at its core. God desires that our passion, our sexual passion, our sexuality, our erotic love for another would flow out of our relationship with him. Of him, with him. And if we're going to do that, I think I'll close with, um, with three points regarding human sexuality. Number one, we have to declare as a church that sex is a good thing created by your Father who loves you. For far too long, the church has seen, been seen as a prudish place where we ignore sexuality or at worst speak ill of it. There was a so-called purity movement that was alive and well in the late 90s when I was in high school um, that on its best day did help students and other single folks avoid lust, and encourage them to save sex for marriage. The problem was that the conversation was pitched in such a way that many just walked away assuming that sex was a dirty thing that had no business being in church, or simply they walked away from the church because they saw a community who didn't seem to be grounded in the real world. Friends, I don't have the answers to all of this, but but I think that our first step in regards to sexuality is to talk about how precious it is, about how precious it is, that, and about how God desires a healthy sex life for you, and that he is at the center of it. So often we use the word fire to discuss sexuality, as in the, the Johnny Cash song, Ring of Fire, but, but remember that fire is also a very useful tool. And if we stay away from it completely, fire sex, we'll never see the light that it can bring. Let me say that again. Fire is a useful tool, and if we stay away from it completely, we will never see the light that it can bring. So that's number one. Sex is good and a precious gift from God. But because it is so precious, that drives us to the second point. Because sex is precious, it deserves boundaries that are for our own good, given to us because God loves us. You don't learn fire safety because people don't want you to have any fun. You learn fire safety so that you can avoid being caught on fire. 
Because being caught on fire hurts you and it potentially hurts others. Sex is a precious thing because it points towards intimacy with God and allows us to have a vulnerable intimacy with another human being. It is because sex is a precious thing that God designed it to be experienced within the boundaries of faithful monogamous marriage. One man, one woman becoming one flesh. When those boundaries are broken and that trust is betrayed, it's a breaking of a deep and sacred covenant, not not just between two individuals, but between those individuals and their God. Because of this, Scripture does give us grounds for divorce. But, but that doesn't make divorce any less tragic. Those of us who have been affected by divorce know that even though there are times when the end of a marriage is the best undesirable choice of many, there's just no way around it being a sad thing. As I said before, Jesus' words in our text this morning, they do offer reason for the occasion of divorce, but But the immensely important thing to remember here is that Jesus' church is always to be a community of love and reconciliation and forgiveness and acceptance. So, number one, sex is good. Number two, because sex is good, it deserves good boundaries. And point three, if sex is good, it deserves good boundaries and if boundaries are good, they deserve healthy discipline. Paul tells us that a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. In our text today, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Jesus is using this strong language to show us that if points one and two are true, then they deserve to be practiced. Not only do they deserve to be practiced, they need to be practiced because this isn't easy by any stretch of the imagination. There are many ways to guard against lust. But I think that one of the most important things to say, and we just don't say this enough, especially for those of us who are married, is that sex needs to be a part of our marriages. Have you ever thought about sex as a spiritual discipline? Maybe you should. Another discipline that is appropriate, especially as we prepare for the Lord's table, is confession. No one gets this right. No one but Jesus, that is. I have never met an adult who doesn't struggle to some degree with the realities of human sexuality, even those who attempt to keep Christ at the center of it. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. There are no extra super holy people except for those who are extra super holy because they have a relationship with the one who embodies righteousness. Jesus calls us to a new way of being human because All other paths lead to death. That's why he used that hell language. He's saying, don't go that way. That way leads only to death. Go my way. I actually am leading the way to life. And when you go the way of Jesus, it will require you to lay your sin at the foot of the cross 
where he paid the price for your sins and mine. 1 John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that what you need today? Take a moment. Consider those things in your life that need to be confessed and give them to God. Repent. Repent is a directional word. Turn in his direction. This is his direction. Come to the Lord's table. Come with your brokenness. Come with who you really are. So we're going to take communion now. The Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And our communion table at New Hope, it's open to all who call upon the name of Jesus as Lord. You're not there yet, and you need to know that you're welcome here and that we love you. We want New Hope to be a place where you can come with your honesty and your doubts I'll also add, as I do every time that we take communion, that the Lord's table is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted, the other being baptism. While communion, it might be said, sustains our faith, baptism proclaims it. So if you find yourself coming forward for communion and you haven't yet been baptized, that's okay, but I'll ask that you come to me later and and discuss what it looks like to be baptized. The bread is unleavened. The red is wine, the white is grape juice, and I will now ask everybody to stand and join with me as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.